Good morning again and welcome to Grace South Bay. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad you've joined us for this first Sunday in Advent. And Advent is the season of the church where the four weeks leading up to Christmas is used as a time uh, to prepare ourselves to celebrate, right? The word Advent means coming or arrival. And so for four weeks, we are encouraged to prepare ourselves for Christmas. Now, often that preparation looks like finishing up last-minute projects at school or at work, shopping, decorating, right, making travel arrangements for yourselves or your family or your friends, and all those things are really good. However, if we were to take this time of year seriously, the preparation that we should be focusing on is what's happening in our hearts as we look forward to celebrating Jesus's Advent, His coming. Now, for this uh, particular Advent season, we're going to be looking at the fact that Advent invites us to look for Jesus' coming in three different ways, right? Obviously, Jesus' first coming when He was born in a manger, right? Jesus' second coming, as Jen mentioned this morning, His return. But then also, in between those two times, the times that we are living in now, Jesus comes to us through His Spirit, And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at those different advents of Jesus. In the front of your bulletin, there is a quote by the St. Bernard of Clairvaux, which articulates these three comings. And that's kind of the theme for our season of Advent this year. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' first coming as proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah almost 700 years before his arrival. So let's listen to the reading of God's Word from Isaiah chapter 61. You can follow along with me in your bulletin. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, as we come before you this morning and hear from you in your word, we confess that our hearts are busy. Maybe they're tired. And it is easy for us to begin to look to other voices, our own or others in the world. And so I pray that you would send your spirit to us this morning. Speak to us through these words written by Isaiah. Help us to see that they contain the words of life. Change us this morning. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The first car that I ever owned was an old 91 Ford Contour. It was given to me as a gift when I was getting ready to go away to college. And even though it was old and beat up, I loved that car. It was a stick shift. I had to learn how to drive that. It was the first I learned to drive on a stick shift. Uh, If you have uh, youth in your family or next to you, you can tell them what a stick shift is later. 
But I drove that car and loved it even when things went wrong. And lots of things went wrong. At first, I uh, left it out in the sun and with some soap on the hood, and the paint began to peel. And I thought, you know what? It's not that big a deal. Gives it some character. Then the window crank broke. It didn't have power windows. It had old crank windows, and the crank on the driver's side broke off. And I thought, that's not a big deal. I can fix it. I took a vice grip, a pair of pliers that can lock, and stuck it onto the little metal post so that I could just spin the window down when I went through toll plazas. Then the rearview mirror fell off. Not a big deal. I can fix it myself, and I did. The battery terminal broke off. I went to a pull-apart place, and I fixed it myself. Then the AC went out. No big deal, I thought. I did live in Florida. However, I just drove everywhere with the windows down and an extra t-shirt for when I got to my destination. But then the thermostat began to rise, slowly but surely, into a range where it was almost overheating. Not a big deal. I thought, I can fix that simply by turning on the heat and full blast. Again, Florida. I don't even know why they sell cars with heat in Florida. And I was getting ready to drive this mangled, self-fixed car home for Thanksgiving one year. My mom said, you should probably get it just checked out by someone to make sure that the overheating isn't a bigger issue. So I remember pulling into the mechanic's shop, telling him what was going on. He opened the hood, and the first thing he did was undo the cap on the uh, uh, antifreeze tank, and steam poured out of it. And he said, well, that's not good. And I said, but it's not a big deal, right? And he said, no, it's, I'm pretty sure that the head gasket is busted on your car. And I said, oh, I'll buy one of those, and I can fix it. And he said, no, you can't. You have to take the engine out, take it apart, replace the head gasket, and put it back together. And I said, okay, I could just drive on it until it's gone, and then, you know, everything will be okay. And he said, no, you probably shouldn't even drive this car away from my shop. The engine could seize up at any moment, and you would slide off the road and have an accident. It was a big deal, and I could not fix it. Thankfully, I was able to take it to someone who could, and I drove the car for much longer. But this attitude towards problems in our life, how many issues do you respond to with the idea, that's not actually that big a deal, or I can fix that? As humans, we have this natural ability to downplay the severity of the complications and hardships in our lives, particularly the ones that we cause ourselves. Perhaps just to prevent ourselves from acknowledging that there's pain, perhaps to get over how traumatic life can be, maybe just to minimize and preserve our own emotional state. But we also have the tendency to significantly overestimate our own abilities to solve those problems. We think that we're pretty thrifty, we're pretty handy, we can solve the problems of our lives. It takes a lot to break you down, doesn't it? It takes a lot for you to say, I can't deal with this on my own. That pride, that self-confidence, that's nothing new for humanity. We have, as humans, from the very beginning, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, developed this knee-jerk reaction of, oh, that's no big deal. I can fix it myself. And that might seem noble to you. Perhaps even as I'm describing this, you're starting to feel a little validated, proud even, that you've made it through your life to this point on just that same attitude. But the reality is, 
living with a heart that says, that's not a big deal, I can fix it myself, creates very little room for Jesus, if any at all. It's not that bad. I don't really need Him. I'll fix it myself. I don't really need Him. God sent the prophet Isaiah to proclaim to Israel that bad things were going to happen. That even though life would get rough, that things would seem dark, that God would do something, send someone to save them. In fact, he proclaims that it would be the darkness itself that shows Israel that he was their only hope, that it was actually a really big deal, and that they could not fix it themselves. And Isaiah's prophecy shows us much the same thing. The deepest of needs needs the strongest of saviors. Just two points for us this morning. I know we don't have projection, I apologize, but you do have a nice big blank spot in your bulletin to write them down. Two points for us this morning, starting with the first, the deepest of needs. This passage comes from the prophet Isaiah, and his ministry covered a very long period of time, and it encapsulated a rather terrible and scary time in the life of God's people. He and his fellow residents of Jerusalem watched in horror as in around 720, the northern kingdom, Israel, was captured and by the Assyrian army, right? People that they knew were exiled or killed. Cities that they may have visited, some that probably sound familiar to you, Shechem, Samaria, Jericho, were sieged and pillaged. And throughout all of that, the buildup to the invasion the attack itself, the aftermath, and the growing threat to the southern kingdom of Judah, through it all, God spoke to His people through Isaiah. In this particular passage, this particular part of the prophecy, God sends words of hope and promise into the broken reality that the world surrounding His people of Israel was. Isaiah was literally describing the world as they knew it. People were poor. They were brokenhearted. They were enslaved. They were captives bound up in prisons. Many were mourning, and to show the effects of their mourning were covered with ashes. They had faint spirits. Many cities were in ruins, the ancient ruins destroyed. And considering all of this devastation and uncertainty, and suffering, the people ask the question, what about God's promises? Or even worse, they'd stopped asking altogether. They'd assumed that God had forgotten them, that He had turned away. The people of both Israel and Judah had long ago, even though they were God's people, dismissed God's role in their present suffering. They began to live as if it was all on their shoulders to fix, to solve their own national and international issues to guide their own nation in people, in morality, to live day in and day out. It was up to them. And for a while, it wasn't a big deal. They were fixing it, and things were just okay. But the arrival of the Assyrians and the breakdown of the northern kingdom pointed out something very clearly. Things were not okay. Sometimes we need a big event to shake the, the, the scales off of our eyes, to see how bad things really are. 
I did fairly well as a student in high school, and I received several scholarships to stay in-state and go to the University of Florida. Scholarships that paid for tuition, for room and board, and extra expenses like books and other things like that. But the reality is, in terms of effort through high school, I kind of just coasted. One of my favorite study techniques was procrastination. I was pretty good at writing a paper that was due the next day. I did okay just by coasting. And when I went to college my first semester, I assumed that would be okay as well. So I spent a lot of time with my new friends. I stayed out late. I woke up early to play video games. I was in the marching band. We traveled to football games all over the Southeast. And when it came to school, I just coasted, procrastinating, writing papers. And I thought I was doing okay. Everything was pretty good. I was getting pretty good grades. Until the day that a letter showed up and explained that because my GPA had dropped below a 3.5 to a 3.49, I had lost the scholarship that paid for all of my room and my board and my books. Gone. I realized things were not okay. It took something that big to shake me out of my belief that things weren't a big deal and I could fix it. Yes, Isaiah is speaking to a fearful and devastated nation, but that's not all. Yes, he is talking about the present suffering of the people of Judah and Israel, but that's not all. What Isaiah is speaking about here is a far greater need, a need actually that you and I share with the people of Israel and with every human. Right? Each of these desperate situations here in the passage is a perfect analogy for the destruction that sin brings to our souls. Analogies that God Himself uses throughout His Word to describe what our sin has done to us. It enslaves us to death and punishment. Our breaking of God's laws, our sin, blinds us from His goodness blinds us to His wisdom and His sovereignty. Our sin breaks our own hearts because of the destruction it causes in our lives, and it breaks our relationship with God Himself. We all know sin devastates generation after generation. This passage points out your sin is a big deal I don't know about you, but I can easily dismiss the severity of my sin. Actually, you know what? I do know you, and I know that you also quickly dismiss the severity of your sin. We downplay it. We dismiss its impact. We blame shift. We excuse ourselves. We fool ourselves into thinking, oh, it was just a passing comment. It was just one mistake, one night. It wasn't all my fault. I'm not the only one to blame here. In fact, I'm not the one to blame here. But this passage and the whole council of Scripture proclaims just the opposite. It is your fault. You are to blame. And it is a big deal. What if we could take Isaiah's prophecy where he speaks to the surface suffering and issues, but is also speaking to the deeper suffering and issues caused by sin and use it to our advantage, particularly during Advent, to see 
that yes, there is suffering in our lives, some done to us and some done by us. What if we were able to see that yes, there is brokenness and sorrow, but all of that is also pointing to a deeper need. Just like Assyria to Israel, sickness, sorrow, pain, and death open our eyes to the reality that things are not okay on a cosmic and spiritual level, that there is a deeper need, and that need is so much deeper than we might want to admit. And if that's the case, then something great has to happen. Something big has to come to meet that need. The deepest of needs needs the strongest of saviors. My second point, the strongest of saviors. The nation of Judah saw Israel get bombarded for years and then finally crumble. They knew that they could not withstand the Assyrian army. In fact, no nation on earth at the time could. They knew that they were next. They knew that their need was great. And do you know how they responded to their deep need? Let's trust in God's promises and let's follow His way of living and responding to the current threat. No! They decided that they were going to solve it themselves. They could fix it. They became an ally with Assyria. They allied themselves with the nation that destroyed half of God's people. This is absolutely crazy, except it's the same way you and I respond to everything. Think about all the dire things that Isaiah is talking about here in this passage. We have come up with some pretty good ways to solve those problems ourselves. We want to solve our problems. We want to meet our needs. Cities and ancient places destroyed? Not to worry. We have some great new construction techniques, materials, and scaling so that we can easily and seamlessly repair ruined cities and broken down buildings. People who are mourning and sorrowful, we have all kinds of ways to deal with a broken heart and sorrow, some of them healthy, some of them not so healthy. But we also know that sorrow and pain and brokenheartedness might not be the only issue. And so we're going to focus on mental health as well, get down to a deeper root, maybe even address generations of trauma. It seems like everybody has the perfect way to save the poor. Governments, nonprofits, individuals, everyone has the plan to save the impoverished. We are people who want to solve our own problems. All of those things are ways we're solving them by ourselves. We're a real go-getting type of people, aren't we? We hear these things and we think, I, I am I'm pretty good at solving these things, right? I can fix anything on my car. And I just want to go ahead and pat myself on the back. And you can too. We're pretty good. Pat yourself on the back. There's your biggest idol, yourself. Recently, one of my daughters has been driving me especially crazy. Her behavior just, it grates on my nerves. And, and if I was honest, it's because her response to me gets at my idol of being listened to and respected. And so it just really, it really ticks me off, and I lose my patience with her so quickly. And one day, about a month, month and a half ago, Nicole said, man, it really seems like you have such a short fuse with her. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit used that as an eye-opener. Ah, things are pretty bad in here and between us, but my response was, I need to have more patience with her. 
I need to approach her more calmly, more gracefully. I should try to spend more time with her and not just ordering her around all the time. All of those are good and gospel-informed responses, but it's also about me, all about how I can fix this problem. And guess what? It hasn't gotten any better. We were driving home from the mountains yesterday, and I was telling her, Nicole, about how she was frustrating me still, and uh, she said, you are just so short with her. She is a child. She is just a child, right? And this is just one instance where I have come to realize that I can't be the solution to my surface problems, much less my cosmic problems, I need someone greater, not to just come and give me some good advice, a helping hand to meet the deficit of where I can't solve the problems. I need to be saved. You need to be saved. And that's why Isaiah talks the way he does. That's why God speaks the way he does through Isaiah. That's the point of these lines, that I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I can't proclaim that. You can't proclaim that. I cannot call myself an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that God Himself may be glorified. These are not things that you and I can do. They're not problems that you and I can fix. This requires God Himself proclaiming His favor, proclaiming us His planting, or we could say it, the fruit of His works. And did you notice what happens after the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed? And after we are proclaimed oaks of righteousness, the the fruit of His works, after that, then we will be able to rebuild and raise up and repair. You thought it was just Presbyterians who used three alliterative sentences. Once this anointed of the Lord comes to save His people calling them oaks of righteousness, making them the fruit of His work, then all of these fixing things we want to do, we will be able to do. God proclaimed this to Israel through Isaiah. Things really are that bad, and only I can fix it. Only I can fix you. And that's exactly why Jesus came. He tells us this in Luke chapter 4. At the beginning of his ministry, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. Someone hands him the scroll to read. He opens Isaiah to this passage, 61. And he reads it. And then he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to do all these things to free those who were captive to sin, to comfort those whom sin has broken, to rebuild the lives which sin has ruined, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and to call you the fruit of God's work. What work? What work has God done that is bearing fruit in you? The work of Jesus, a life of perfect obedience to God's law, a life that did not deserve the death that He suffered torturously on the cross. Jesus came, 
He died and He rose again. That work bears fruit in you so that you would know this is the year of the Lord's favor. You are an oak of righteousness that God may be glorified in you. Jesus came for us. And that's why we celebrate His birth every year. And that's what Advent should do in our hearts. It should remind us that things really are that bad that we needed God to show up. That things really are that bad and only God can and has saved us. Advent can be a type of signal, right? Maybe you remember in the old Batman, there was a bat signal, right? This is where Commissioner Gordon would go up onto the top of the police building and he would turn on a big spotlight and it had a Batman shape on it so that it would show up in the clouds. Right now they just like send emojis to each other to let them know something's happening. But it was this signal of hope for those who were being oppressed. Maybe there was a bank robbery somewhere in Gotham City, or someone was being abducted or held for ransom, whatever it was. And when they saw the bat signal in the sky, they knew help is on the way, right? If your life is filled with suffering and oppression and hardship right now, Advent stands as a giant sign of hope because Jesus has come. He has done the work. And this is the year of the Lord's favor. But have you ever thought about this? When that bat signal or sign, whatever it was called, was up in the sky, there are thousands of other people in Gotham City who things are going well for. There are plenty of banks not being robbed, plenty of people not being abducted. And so when they saw the bat signal, they had to think, man, things in this city, they're pretty bad. But they also knew hope was on the way. That's how this prophecy of Isaiah, that's how Advent can work for us, reminding us that Jesus came to save us, which means if life is rough, you have hope in Jesus. And if your life is not rough, it is a reminder that things are probably far worse, that you are probably far worse than you would like to admit. But we know for sure how and in whom God has fixed us. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you saw us desperate, destitute in our sin, and able to help ourselves, to save ourselves. And you sent your son Jesus to live the perfect life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to rise again to guarantee that for those who are in Jesus, this is the year of the Lord's favor, that His work is bearing fruit in us, making us more like Him. I pray that as we continue to try and fix our own problems, continue to try and meet the needs of our lives, that we would be reminded that if we are able to, it's only because of You. And if we can't, we should turn to You. Oh God, may this Advent be a time when we see and know things really are bad, but you are so much better. We pray all of this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.